Conversations with Jet Wheeler is presented by the Office of Arts and Cultural Programming and Peak Performances at Montclair State University. Wow, you're amazing. When did this start? When did that start for you? I don't think you've ever told me. Um, other people have asked me, and uh, my story keeps changing, and every single one of them is true. Because I think that um, um, so many factors and stories um, along my life have contributed to it. I don't want to bore anybody with <laughs> my um, life story, but I think one. Which life story you want to tell? Well, tell well it the the one that probably um, formed the first enthusiasm was the uh, my fascination with Sherlock Holmes, which began at age six, and I wanted to decipher the story of the dancing man, because Sherlock Holmes deciphers the message, uh, a death threat to his client's wife by deciphering the three letters T-H-E uh, coded as the stick figures of the dancing man. And uh, the first thing was it was in another language. I was born and grew up in Russia on the western border of Siberia, and I, I read and spoke Russian only. Um, and the other thing was that it was an article, a definitive article, the. And I thought that, I mean, this was just an unfathomable uh, notion because there are no articles in Russian. So this was an entirely different grammatical structure and it blew me away, the whole idea that you can live in another language. Another thing that um, uh, happened also at the age of six, which <laughs> seems like all the most important things happened then, was that I uh, looked for, found, and lost God all in one day. Um, I started to read, other than Sherlock Holmes, also Russian literature. And uh, if you had a chance, you probably know that Russian literature has no sex, um, but has a lot of God. Even if there isn't God, it's in between the lines and the sort of ethical drive um, is profoundly mystical and most of the time religious. So I decided to go find God. And uh, I went to church, because that's God's address. And I came in, and I saw the icons, and I smelled the smell. And 
I didn't get it. And then I heard the bell. And Russian bells are very low decibel because it's a very big country. So you have to carry sound. So it's not the tilidon, tilidon of the Catholic called Lutheran churches. It's this boom. And uh, it reverberated in my being to such a profound extent. And I thought, well, that's God. So I ran to my father, who's a staunch atheist and scientist. I'm born into a family of scientists. And I said, Papa, I found God. And my father said, well, where did you find him? He said, I found him in my ribs. He's in my ribs. And my father looked at me and he said, well, if he should be anywhere, it should be there. <laughs> and the way he said it, though, there was something about his look. And I thought, something's funny about that. So I went back and I heard this again, boom. And I went up into the bell tower and I looked at this enormous bell. I mean, it's just like the size of a building. And I thought, it's the bell. And what is really interesting is that although I lost God within 24 hours, it was a thrill that I can't describe either. Because it was a thrill that you can communicate and evoke this profound, inexplicable feeling, this reverberation. Now, my memory has it that while it was still reverberating, that I put my head against it and let it reverberate until it stopped. Well, very recently I went back, went up to the bell tower that, of that church. I don't think I could have done that, but it's in my memory really, really um, clearly. And um, so then as uh, life went on, I learned um, English by reading. Nobody around me spoke until I went to school specialized in English. I learned Spanish because I wanted to read Don Quixote and the original, which actually turned out to be much more complicated than I thought it one at first. Um, French and, and, and I started to sort of live in these different lives. And, um, and then um, I went to the philological faculty of, uh, at the time, Leningrad University in St. Petersburg, now back to its original name. And uh, I studied uh, English language and literature. And there, we also studied linguistics. I came across Noam Chomsky and his writing. Um, and um, many, not many, but a few people along the line, uh, like the great uh, literary critic, philologue, uh, Averin, and um, also wonderful British thinker who lived in France, John Berger, uh, Noam Chomsky, they affected me in the way that I think about the world in extraordinary, profound ways. And the idea of language loss I understood many years ago and first became an essay, then transformed into a photographic project, then into an installation in the forest, 
and and then to this. And probably the first articulation that's clear in 2003 in my Guggenheim failed <laughs> application, um, where I fully sort of fledged out how it was going to be. And only until my previous project made uh, money that I could afford to make it because it was quite an enterprise. When did you decide that you were going to create an oratorio based on out of extinction from the loss of language. I mean, um, composers create language, but you're creating an oratorio structured almost exclusively by words and sounds that no longer exist. That's right. When I was uh, thinking about the project and the form that it would take, because of course it took all these different forms. Why it ended up being an oratorio is by listening to them. And I listened to them in the dark room. I'm a photographer, I work with analog, large format negatives. I develop my negatives and I print them. And my kind of dark room is particularly dark because of the chemistry that I use, it's fairly volatile, so it cannot be exposed to too much even red light. So it's a very dim red bulb and total darkness much of the time for me, unless I'm traveling and shooting. And I listened to these recordings in a dark room when it's just me, that red light, my prints, and these voices. And I began to go into a state of trance. It's to a state also where I could feel that I recognized them. But the more I heard them, the more I thought, this is an oratorio. And I didn't want to make it a requiem. I wanted to make it an oratorio. Well, I have to say that I, well, this evening, I've obviously seen this before, but this evening, you say it's not a requiem. And uh, unfortunately, uh, my experience is one of deep, profound loss when I, in this, particularly this evening for other reasons. But you can't get away from the fact that you're, you're lamenting something that is so fundamentally about life. Yes. You know, that we are losing, losing a language is, I mean, we can talk about losing plants. We can talk about losing the land. But we can talk about losing animals. But the language of a human being to be lost is one of the, for me, one of the most the deepest and saddest experiences. Yes. Because when that voice is gone, that's the right. uniqueness of that human being that is gone. And that's what this film has done for me. And I don't consider it a film. And strangely enough, even though it's about language, I run out of words when I think about what is it exactly. Because it's essentially a four-dimensional uh, sound sculpture, yes. it's in time and it's, and it's in space, and it has a, 
these images um, that I found connected. Um, and the first undertitle was Vanished Voices, because the full title is Last Whispers, Oratorio for Vanished Voices, Collapsing Universes, and a Falling Tree. And then I, the more, I mean, I worked with linguists, archives, and the communities themselves. My go-to idea was that um, people who wanted to be part of it should be part of it. I couldn't reach all of them. By definition, uh, they're gone. Um, all cannot be reached. I relied on linguists to advise me because they're the ones who acquired first permissions and clearances to begin with and knew exactly communities. However, the most important uh, idea uh, was that um, I realized that they all really fight. Not all, but some really do. And there's a life in them, in that language, in some languages. There are revitalization programs going around. And I changed it to vanishing, oratorio for vanishing languages, collapsing universes, and a falling tree. What? Um, I don't look at this as a polemic. And, uh, it's not uh, a polemic. At all. However, yeah. there must be something very specific that you want to achieve. I want us to be able to hear them. I mean, all these recordings, um, they've sat around in archives. A lot of them are publicly available. Um, this is where Sherlock Holmes comes in. <laughs> And, uh, uh, and yet, even if I stood on the corner of the street and yelled on the corner like a mad woman, cultures and languages are dying, no one will pay attention. And I really want us to hear and listen and hear that. And I wanted us to be haunted by the idea that although we are drowning in the sounds of our own voices. We're floating on an ocean of the silence of others. Mm. And, and th that whole idea, that whole uh, existential exercise could only be achieved if I did something neurological to audience. So I needed a team, and I had brilliant, brilliant team. Uh, Mark Mangini and Marco Capalbo, my uh, sound designers and engineers, because I needed to engineer this, um, this sculpture. And what happens is that the, um, our brain perceives these voices in this sculpture as present. So the form of the extinction is silence. How do you articulate? such extinction. You sound what has gone silent. It's an obvious answer. But how? I want to make it so sound, so present, that their existence cannot, will not be denied. That you will sit there and you will know they lived, they live, they're around you. Just listen. 
I mean, the revelation that on average every two weeks a language disappears, vanishes. Some people say it's a more rapid pace. What languages have been saved? Well, not many. But there are uh, two cases that are the most massive cases, the biggest cases. One is the case of Gaelic, and the other one is the case of Hebrew. And um, what happened was the, uh, um, there was a political will on the side of the power to allow and to allocate policy and wealth towards revitalization project. And there was the will on behalf of the people. So after 800 years of Gaelic being illegal in Ireland, you could not mm -hmm. speak it. Um, and after horrible bloodshed, <laughs> euphemistically called the Troubles, uh, there was a Good Friday Accord, according to which Gaelic was one of the first, if not the first, uh, point of settlement. And that was that there was money and policy dedicated to revitalization of Gaelic. It was taught at school, it was compulsory, radio, theater, cultural programming, you cannot be a teacher or a policeman if you do not know Gaelic. So, um, and a lot of Irish will complain because Gaelic is highly complex. But what it did create? It created a situation that's really fascinating. So, um, people who are in their 70s and 80s speak fluent Gaelic. People my age and younger speak fluent Gaelic in Ireland across the board. And the generation in between, which would be, for example, generation of my parents, like in their 60s, uh, they, they don't. And, and they are the sort of situation, they are the clear case that Gaelic would have been gone. There was, it just made it by a hair. Fascinating case. Um, and by the way, the director of the theater where Last Whispers will show in Paris, she was part of the Tony Blair government, um, Ruth Mackenzie. Ruth was, really? Ruth, she was, uh, who was doing this very programming about Gaelic revitalization. We had a really fascinating conversation with her. Um, and another one is Hebrew because it was essentially an extinct language until the formation of the State of Israel. And until, uh, and obviously, uh, it became the language of the State of Israel. And not only is it language of the State of Israel, there's Nobel Prize given for literature written in, Gale, in, in the Hebrew, so there's a lot of creativity happening constantly in a language that almost went extinct. So there are these two cases, and again, it's not particularly rocket science what it is. And there are certain things that are intangible and hard to grasp, which is prestige. You know, a lot of people give up their language because of prestige. 
One of the greatest writers about that is Chimamanda Ngocce Dici, and how she describes the sort of her way uh, when she leaves Nigeria and uh, stops speaking Igbo, which is spelled I-G-B-O, Igbo, uh, how uh, she changes, how things change, um, and, and much of it has to do with dis uh, prestige. It's very beautifully described. Or and economic survival. Right. But I think there's certain tides that are changing about that. There are certain things that are changing about that, and there are improvements. But there's a long way to go. I wonder how many languages we have in this room. You don't have to answer. The, uh, I was fascinated to learn that uh, Ross Perlin, who's coming on Saturday, told me that uh, he just finished a study of the uh, borough of, Man of Queens. And I believe he's documented that there are over 375 languages spoken um, in, the, in Queens. Um, it's fascinating that there could be so many in such a concentrated part of any city. Uh, yeah, and I think Ross told me in New York there are about 800 different languages. Plural. Oh. I'd like to bring you all into this conversation, speaking of language. Um, we have... Um, Ushers on either side, if you raise your hand, we'll give you a microphone. And I would love to hear your impressions. How did this film, this oratorio, affect you? And what would you like to ask Lena? Hello, hi. Hello. So I really liked the film. It felt, to me at least, it was very immersive. Like, I just felt like you hear a lot of different things. Like, if I'm in a public space, and everyone is just talking one single language, you can clearly identify what that language is. But in this space, I just feel like there are so many different type of voices and stories that's going on at the same time that like, as it got more and more intense, especially at the very end of the film, it just felt like the silence became very loud to me. And then you also mentioned earlier, I think you said Gaelic and Hebrew, were languages that you say were saved. Do you think with all the new languages that are also still, even though there's not as many as there used to be, with all the new languages that are still out there, do you think like new languages could be created? Like things can still be fused to create something new? Um, well, there are, there are always uh, languages being created. And for example, uh, in prisons and in the ghettos, uh, because the uh, population uh, wants to evade power, and absolutely correctly, they come up with their own languages. There's a lot of creativity happening there. Twins, unknown, identical twins particularly, to come up with their own language. Um, ideologically driven Esperanto was a language that uh, was created language quite a while ago, but it was meant to unite everybody and find common language, so to speak, uh, for everyone. Um, I know uh, the guy who created all the languages for Game of Thrones, <laughs> uh, which is a really fascinating guy, a fascinating job. And I uh, went, a few, went a few times to Pentecostal churches where people speak in tongues in tongues. So they're creating languages in this sort of ecstatic moments. And they, 
they, they, they uh, create it and they die within these moments. It's actually an extraordinary act of creativity uh, and fascinating. So there's clearly some kind of an, an, an aspect, an organ in our brain that desires this creation. So um, the thing about them is uh, uh, it's, it's a fascinating linguistically, psychologically, politically issue for sure. Um, the urgency of um, at least documenting, if not encouraging, um, you know, knowing, remembering, and creativity in uh, quote-unquote minority languages is because this is our human wealth. You know, we become inherited in who we are. So, um, for example, in case with Gaelic, what does became of Irish people the fact that they became bilingual? They became inherited in their history profoundly because it's encoded in the language, the history of your people. And yet, of course, they are also bilingual. They are fluent, all fluent English speakers. So they're people of the world and people of their own history at the same time. I've been walking around New York this week and I see bilingualism is sexy <laughs> everywhere. Have you seen that? It's, it's, I was like, yes, I've been taking pictures of that. Um, it's advertising Rosetta Project so, language courses, but still it's true. So would you say, like, is there, like, since with your experience, is there, like, guidelines that you like to follow that makes you confirm something is, like, an authentic language or something that you would say is respected for it to be... So like I know when you, when you were talking about the Gaelic language, you also yeah. mentioned how it was being taught in schools as well. Would you say like is there a certain like bridge that the language that's being spoken has to cross in order for it to be well respected or at least recognized? Well, in this regard, I really agree with uh, Professor Noam Chomsky, and he says this: um, if uh, uh, um, while Piri or uh, uh, obscure dialect was the language of a, a dominant group. I'm paraphrasing what he's saying, but that's the sense. We would all be spe speaking Walpiri. <laughs> there is, you know, it's it's because it's the, the it's the language of the winners that tends to carry. So Roman Empire alone is supposedly responsible for the ratio of at least 1,000 languages, give or take 10 or 20 or 50. So, um, and of course, a lot of it also happens through cultural domination, through uh, movies, literature, through proliferation of uh, media, um, but also climate changes. For example, one of the things that you may notice in the um, uh, globe, that we created uh, with uh, my team, Amanda Tasse, animator, my brilliant designer, Maggie Morris, here, sitting. Um, was that um, I didn't want to create Google Google map. So, uh, but I wanted to locate GPS correctly 
the languages where they were found and collected by linguists, uh, by the archivists. So uh, I took the contours of the continents and the, the countries and the islands correctly, uh, their GPS correctly located, and I subtracted you know, the Google Earth and all the rest and collected NASA images of uh, uh, climate events, hurricanes, uh, floods, etc., uh, and uh, sewed them together like a blanket, and then took away the, uh, the, the seams. And so it looks like water underneath that water. But what happens is that climate change actually affects the most uh, um, marginalized community. Minority languages are spoken overwhelmingly in those marginalized communities. The fires that you see in Amazonia uh, made tribes to leave, get up and leave, and go um, get absorbed. They will be speaking Portuguese most likely in a few years, and their kids will. Uh, same happens with, with floods, etc. And that's sort of the story of that. And I think that just the, the, um, the change has to happen on a larger scale in society. What is it that we value? You know, the fact that this doesn't have market value shouldn't be the determining factor. You know? So what is it that really is important to us? And I don't want any kind of cheap posturing, ideological, righteous, moralistic posturing. I want action. I'd like, I'd like this to happen, what happened with Gaelic to many languages. I understand it can't be my, uh, done to most, but hopefully many. Over there, in the back. But I was just thinking that, um, Often when ecologists and conservationists advocate for maintaining biodiversity, they will cite the potential human benefit. Uh, for example, you know, we should act to conserve um, a region where there is a plant that might one day yield some antibiotic for an unknown disease. So I'm wondering if you can think, you talk a little bit about the value, can you think, is there a parallel in linguistics, um, sort of a self-serving motivation for maintaining uh, linguistic diversity? Um, you mean functionality? Yes. And I, as you say, I, there can be the, the, the moral right. cause for it, but you know, right. on a more... <laughs> well, I mean, truth is that uh, language and language study has always been uh, one of the crux of uh, power. So it's not a coincidence that um, consultants like Frank Lutz, for example, who is a linguist, is hired by conservative political campaigns um, and changes course of events by just making definitions that suit the interest group, quote unquote. <laughs> um, the, uh, uh, 
you know, I just read recently in the interview, um, Snowden worked at uh, the NSA Language Center. So they have a language center. Um, and uh, very frequently studying different languages yielded coding, <laughs> encoding, decoding. There's a very well-known case. I don't remember which language it was. It may have been Cheyenne, it may have been Navajo. The code talkers, it was Navajo, yeah, the, during Second World War. Yeah, so they were um, uh, the ones that were talking in Germans knew that they were transmitting messages, uh, but they couldn't be cracked because Navajo grammar is just nothing like German. And so no nothing in their language allowed for that. Please. I, I have a question in terms of, uh, I get the sense that certain, certain languages uh, are invented in some ways to enable people to discuss the things that are important when people talk about how Inuit tribes will, will speak, have many, many words for snow. And I wonder in the sense of, and in, with languages ex becoming extinct, is there a loss of the, the underlying thought process, the subtleties Absolutely. that they document? You know, um, and depending on where you are in the world, your world could be, again, you know, snow could be one example. Hawaii, I know, is now making a big effort to revitalize Hawaiian. Yeah. But I would imagine that there are a lot of things that are described in Hawaiian historically that are pertain to the ocean or pertain to the trop you know, a tropical world and that in losing the language, you lose the subtlety of the description. Not only subtlety, but you lose sexual uh, capabilities as well. For example, it's known that uh, in uh, Australian Aboriginal languages, um, we know that for sure in Walpiri, but maybe also a Kaket, that you never say a sentence without a very precise description of direction. And by direction, I mean like, you know, far more complex than, you know, I don't know, southwest. Like, pass me butter southwest. And there's no um, basic sentence hardly goes by without directionality of complexity and extreme precision. So what is really interesting is that they found that those people who speak these Aboriginal languages, you can blindfold them, turn them around, you know, drop them in the desert, they'll find their way. They find that their kids who don't have no such ability. So the connection between language and ability, language and thought, it's absolutely there. There's no question about that. Well, there's no question in my mind that your film and the oratorio was brilliant. Thank you. And a gift. A gift thank to you. us all. Thank you. Thank you. And thank, thank you all for coming. Come back again, please. <laughs>